One definition of leadership that I love the most is those who are willing to step into that unknown. So what that requires is not like building so much armor that you never feel fear. It means having courage, which means feeling fear and, and moving forward anyways, one little step at a time. So would you just be willing to notice some discomfort, little fear, and that's totally okay. There's no problem here. Have you recently thought about what your upper limiting beliefs are? and how they might be holding you back from realizing your fullest potential? In this episode, we discuss with Joyce Chen, coach and facilitator at the Conscious Leadership Group, about how we can overcome our upper limiting beliefs and the ways that believing our upper limits can hold us back from our zone of genius. Joyce also dives into practical and actionable steps to address our upper limiting beliefs through the framework of pausing, accepting, and inquiring. Also, spoiler alert, we get really candid and quite personal during this episode as part of our live coaching demonstration with Joyce to identify our personal upper limiting beliefs in our own lives right now. So what are you waiting for? Let's dive right in. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. I am an executive coach and facilitator with the Conscious Leadership Group. And I wasn't always an executive coach. I actually worked in marketing and advertising for 20 years before I became a coach. And my last role was the global head of production at Meta, or it was called Facebook when I joined. So I did that before I became a coach. And I met the two of you through a client of mine, Rachel Lim, who is the host of Rachel Flex and also the founder of Lou Benito. We loved the episode that you recorded with Rach and it was a very real experience for us to learn about Zone of Genius. For today's episode, we'll be listening and hearing as well as learning from you more about overcoming our upper limits, otherwise mm-hmm. known as limiting beliefs. What prompted you to take the leap after around 20 years in the advertising industry to start your new career now as a leadership coach, consultant? and facilitator at the Conscious Leadership Group. It was actually a very like organic way that my career changed, but that doesn't mean it was smooth or easier that I didn't face any limiting beliefs as I made that career change. So I was a leader at Meta and I led a really large team. So I think at the largest, it was probably 150 people across four different regions. And it was a very high performance organization. Um, there were lots of goals, very ambitious people. It was the best of the best. And we were running a creative organization inside of an engineering company, which was challenging on its own. On top of that, Facebook at the time now met up was the largest social media platform. So it was facing a lot of headwinds from a lot of scrutiny and criticism from the press. There was congressional hearings going on. And so that added a layer of challenge to working there. And what I'll say is the learner in me saw everything as a great learning opportunity, but I also saw people on my team just facing so much adversity where they were struggling to find who they were, what type of leaders they were. They didn't know how to find career fulfillment in such a large organization. And so what I ended up doing, if you were really to know me, I'm a personal and professional development junkie, which means I've always like seen therapists, coaches, I seek out advice. I'm always like looking for the truth or that thing to unlock something I'm trying to figure out. So I read lots of professional development books as well. And when I came across the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, a light bulb just turned off in my head because it was all of these ideas that the authors had curated from different spiritual and psychology leaders in different fields that they brought together in a really simple set of business tools. And what I love that they were focused on was this idea of context over content, meaning instead of just focusing on like the who, what, where, when of people's professional lives or personal lives, they were teaching people how to change their relationship with their content, which is what we call context. And so when you focus on context over content, especially in coaching, this has the ability to help people solve a lot of different things that are happening in their careers or in their personal lives. Because you're starting to see the container that holds problems and shift the containers rather than just one problem at a time. So it's a really sustainable model of coaching. So I started to teach my, my direct reports from this book. And then they were talking to other people about it. Other people started asking me if I would train them. And then eventually it became an 18-hour, six-month-long course 
that we ended up training over 200 Meta leaders through in my time at Meta on top of my full-time job. First, I got practice. I got certified by the authors of the book to be a coach with them. I took both other trainings with them and I loved it. So I loved every minute that I was doing it. It actually put energy back in the tank after long weeks at work. I would always look forward to those sessions. And then eventually it grew. And so many people asked me to either train them at their new company or coach them that the scale sort of just tipped. And I took like one step off the curb to become a coach. I really love how you were able to discover what really gets you in flow when you got to incorporate elements of coaching, not by leaving your role completely, but also being able to do that in the midst of your full-time job. I think that's super, super cool. It's something I always tell my clients if they're ex- wanting to explore their zone of genius or if they have a sense of what that is, that you don't have to quit your job or leave your job to be able to touch that or explore it. You can actually do that within the realm of whatever job you have. That's something we definitely want to talk a little bit more and explore about when we get into the topic of the zone of genius, which really, really gave us a light bulb moment. Earlier, we talked about this concept of upper limits or rather known as limiting beliefs and how you transition um, from your role of head of production at Meta to being a leadership coach. But for those who might not be familiar with this concept, can you elaborate and, and share with our audience what do you mean by upper limits or, or limiting beliefs? Yeah. So upper limits is a term that was coined by Gay Hendricks, who is an author and a psychologist. He also founded the Hendricks Institute. And he wrote about the term upper limits in his book, The Big Leap. We also talk about it in the books of 15 Commandments of Conscious Leadership. But basically, it's this idea that we all have some kind of internal limit on how much abundance, happiness, success, or fulfillment we think we deserve. And it looks different for everyone because it's almost like if you imagine you have an internal thermostat that you set that tells you how much happiness, success, fulfillment you get to have. And it's very much determined by your conditioning. So what I mean by conditioning is this thermostat setting that I'm talking about that tells us how happy we get to be, it is dependent on a bunch of things. It's dependent on our upbringing, fears that we might have, things that we were told by our family, by our culture, by society, and other people as we were growing up. And so this kind of conditioning creates this notion of we have this internal thermostat, and if we exceed it, it's our human tendency to knock ourselves down or to self-sabotage when we go higher than that thermostat setting. So When we poke our heads through the clouds of conditioning or when we start to rise above that thermostat setting, self-sabotage can happen and it's happening at a very unconscious level, actually. So limiting beliefs are stories that we tell ourselves about why we can't be happier, more fulfilled, more successful. And then the upper limiting problem is that when we start to self-sabotage, when we start to exceed that thermostat setting that we have for ourselves to keep bringing ourselves back down to the setting uh, that we believe we deserve. And I'm aware that there are different types of upper limiting beliefs. Could you just share with the audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there are four main types of upper limiting beliefs. And I know for myself, when I heard about the notion of upper limits, it just put me at ease because I was facing a lot of upper limits when I left Meta. I'd spent 20 years climbing to the top of one field And it felt really scary to, in my 40s, start in a totally new field where I didn't have as big of a network. I didn't know if I was going to succeed. And I had like a real big fear of failure. So just knowing that the upper limits happen for everyone and that it's normal made me feel a little bit more at ease about what I was experiencing and less alone. And then when I heard that there are four kinds, I was like, oh, okay, everybody has these kinds of beliefs. And it's not unusual for me to have these these thoughts. And so the first of our limiting kind of belief is um, feeling fundamentally flawed. So it's this idea that we're broken, we're going to fail, there's something wrong with us, that we're not going to succeed. And I know that when I started thinking about making a career transition, even though I had lots of evidence to prove that otherwise, I definitely thought, well, this is a new thing. It's not how my family, my parents, or my culture has defined success compared to this like quote unquote big job at a well-known company that has a certain compensation. And so I thought, well, if it's not that, then I'm certainly going to fail. And if I like it this much, it's like exceeding my thermostat setting and and I'll probably fail at this. So that one really resonated with me. 
The second kind of upper limiting belief is disloyalty and abandonment. So it's this idea of being afraid, be disloyal or be perceived as abandoning those you care about or those that you are in relationship with. And so I definitely felt that way when I left because I was the leader of a team. I had hired many people on my team. I had authored a roadmap with goals. So I felt, well, if I leave, I'm going to be abandoning them when they need me. Am I going to be not a loyal person when we all agreed we're going to do this together? And so that came up in a very strong way for me when when I was leaving Meta. The third is this idea that more success equals a bigger burden. So I noticed that this one shows up, especially for people who are going through life transitions and they have a lot of competing priorities where the idea of more happiness, more fulfillment also sounds like maybe more work or more responsibility than they may be prepared for or want in that moment. And then the fourth kind of upper limit is outshiny. And this one but it comes up fairly often, I think, in the clients that I work with, but it can also be sneaky where we don't realize there is some kind of conditioning that lives in us where we don't want to outshine others, especially if there are close people in our lives that we make up might be threatened by that or might uh, feel less than if we were really to step into our genius and reach for our full, full potential. It's so fascinating when you break it down like that. And it's, I, I think for different people due to various reasons, they might face these kind of upper limiting beliefs, um, either from you know, intrinsically or ex- extrinsic influences. But when you spoke about um, the first one, which is feeling fundamentally flawed and that certain element of not enoughness, yeah, uh, it does struck a chord within me, I think, for myself and Sarah. And we, we've spoken before this. We pivoted careers, right, from law to areas of tech and in human capital. And I think for me personally, to make that leap initially and having invested years in law, obviously not, not as long as you, 20 years in Meta, but still long enough to, to feel that, oh my goodness, do I have to start from scratch? And am I going to really bomb and it's going to end up being a total disaster and I'll disappoint my parents? All those feelings of feeling not enough, feeling flawed in a sense, like that were thoughts that I battled with personally as well as I was starting my career pivot journey. So it, that really, really resonated with me. Why do you think people have, especially the ones who might feel fundamentally flawed when they are making big transitions and and moves, why do these thoughts crop up? Are there certain reasons or or themes that you see within your clients? Well, I would say it's all based on some degree of fear. So the three core wants of the human ego, every human wants these things, are control, security, and approval. And I think back in the caveman days, we're all hardwired for survival. And so back then, from an evolutionary perspective, having security meant we were safe. It it, it guaranteed our physical safety that we would survive. Having approval meant we would be part of the tribe and therefore wouldn't get cut off from the group or resources and also ensure our survival. And then having control kind of ensured we'd have more approval and more security. And so what I notice in adult today who are facing some of these upper limiting beliefs is they think about expanding to new possibilities, like entering new territories, increasing their amount of happiness or fulfillment, and they're facing a degree of change that feels scary. And so to leave the known for the unknown can trigger some feelings of like, I don't know, is this safe? And then you start to worry about is it a threat to my control, approval, or security sometimes, and usually it's both free. And when the ego perceives that one of those things are a threat, we get scared and then we start to make up stories for why we're scared and why we can't do it. And so I think that shows up as a universal theme for everyone. Um, Feeling fundamentally flawed for me personally was very much about approval. It was feeling like I had been conditioned by my parents who were immigrant parents to the United States from Taiwan. They were very hard on me and my sister's. On top of that, we grew up in a volatile household. My dad was abusive. And so he would often tell me things like, I wasn't smart or I was worthless or I wasn't valuable. And those were his ways of kind of like scaring me into behaving the way that he wanted. And so I grew up uh, really outsourcing my approval and then believing that I needed to do things that my parents expected of me in order to succeed or um, have a value or enoughness in the world. And so for me personally, feeling fundamentally flawed came up a lot from that experience conditioning in my family. Thank you for sharing that very personal and real experience 
of how family played such a huge role, consciously or subconsciously, in defining how we have unconsciously also set our versions of upper limiting belief. What other ways do we subconsciously allow for society to reinforce these upper limiting beliefs that we have? Oh my gosh, there are so many. And one I love to think of is this idea of the starving artist. It's the, t- the term that everyone knows um, that we all use and is a part of like the global vernacular. But it's a limiting belief around if you are a creative, if you pursue an art- artistic career, you will never make enough money to survive. So that's one that I think we're all familiar with. And then there are lots of other terms that people use every day, but we may not realize that are unconsciously reinforcing upper limiting beliefs. So what goes up must come down to the idea that things are too good to be true, waiting for the other shoe to drop. So these are all just beliefs that I think that we everybody talks about, everybody kind of accepts, but they just push that upper limiting belief that that thermostat said it cannot really exceed where you said it. Help us to understand when we say things like what goes up must come down or something is too good to be true, fundamentally, it means that there is something within us that feels something's going to mess up. We're going to vomit. We're going to screw up. Things will go wrong. How do we comprehend this idea that these phrases that we've been brought up with might not be true? I think that a lot of these kinds of values that we're hearing in these sayings have what I call like an external locus of control. So it's believing that what happens in life is happening to us rather than us being the cause and control of our lives. It's a psychology term. People who focus on the external locus of control, they tend to believe that things happen by luck or it's a one-time thing or something bad will happen. They often don't feel like they're in, in control or the creators of their experience. People who focus more on an internal locus of control, which is very much what conscious leadership and other coaching modalities focus on, move the cause and control of our lives to inside of us. So we are the creators of our experience. And even though we can't control what life hands us, we can very much control how we respond to it. And from that place, we get to control our experience of life because it's in our response that creates that experience. And so... When you have an internal locus of control, you start to think about how you might be the creator of the experiences that are happening and starting to own how you're co-creating your life with the universe. And then believing that you can exceed that internal thermostat, having awareness that maybe it feels a little too good to be true, but I'm not going to self-sabotage and bring myself back down. I'm not going to blame it on external circumstance or say that it's just luck or serendipitous. I'm actually going to own that I had some part in creating this new greater experience or greater fulfillment that I'm having. And I'm going to recalibrate my thermostat so that I can increase my tolerance for happiness and fulfillment over time. And there's really simple practices to do that. Um, one of the things we like to recommend at Conscious Leadership Group is that when you exceed that thermostat setting, one way you could self-sabotage is say you've got a promotion at your job and then you unconsciously exceed that thermostat setting and you go out and you party all night and then you're so hungover you miss the big meeting the next morning. That's an example of upper limiting and then hitting that upper limiting problem to bring yourself back down. Another way you could handle it is by doing grounding exercises that just help you recalibrate your system to a new norm. So you get the promotion, you notice you're hitting an upper limit, it feels a little uncomfortable, like new territory. Maybe you're having some of those beliefs surface. And instead, you just do something really grounding, like walking the dog or going for a walk, something that's a regular part of your everyday routine so that you can recalibrate your system to like a new high. I really love how these practices that you've shared are really so actionable and just as simple as being mindful and taking those steps to to recalibrate yourself internally and it's also that reminder that it's within our hands, right? We do have that autonomy over our lives to ensure that we don't allow our upper limiting beliefs to limit us. Through this conversation, I'm realizing now that truly to allow upper limiting beliefs to limit our potential, that is it's such a waste and it's such a travesty. So from your experience, speaking to clients, even in your own personal life choice, what are the ways that some of these upper limiting beliefs can cost us or, or limit us? 
Oh my gosh. Uh, believing your limiting stories can really hold you back from your potential. It's you putting an artificial ceiling on what you're able to achieve, accomplish. I think we all in- innately have a sense of what wants to happen through us, what we want to accomplish in this lifetime. And if we allow ourselves to believe these limiting beliefs, then we're really preventing ourselves from ever being able to touch that or to realize it. I work with a lot of clients who have come to me feeling stuck. Mm. So they'll say, I've reached a certain level of success in my career. There's not that much to complain about, but I just wonder if there's more. I'm feeling stuck. I'm wondering what the next chapter or next season of my career or life will look like. And is this it? So they're asking some really big questions. And it's their upper limiting beliefs that are holding them back from being able to expand or like the way I envision it is almost like spreading your wings, like really using your full wingspan to do what you're here to do in this life. Mm. And I would say the biggest thing is that upper limiting beliefs hold us back from our zone of genius. This idea that we all have a zone of genius, everybody has it. It's when we give our unique gifts, capabilities to the world and we are in our flow state where work doesn't even feel like work. And we're generating the most amount of impact compared to the amount of time or effort that we're putting into what it is that we're doing. And often those who are living and working in their genius just feel so alive. So I always say the metric for success in the world of consciousness is how alive do you feel every day? How connected do do you feel to yourself? How connected do you feel to your purpose? Are you aligned to your purpose and directionality in the world? Yeah, I'm so fascinated by this concept. Do you mind sharing with us the difference, I think, between the zone of genius and excellence and and what is your zone of genius? I mean, it's quite evident to us right now, but we'd just love to hear you share and how you went about discovering your own zone of genius. I'll just touch on each of the four zones. And again, this is all in Gay Hendricks' book, The Big Leap. And it's also in the chapter on genius in the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. For those who want to dive deeper, I'll just touch on them very quickly. The zone of incompetence is, it doesn't mean you're incompetent, but it means you're doing something that pretty much everybody else does better than you. So you tend to get negative feedback about this. It leaves you feeling full of dread. For me, that is very much anything related to like, like scheduling or I'm very bad at ge- geography. Like anything that has to do with directions. Medicine stuff. Yeah, like nine times out of 10, I'm going to make a mistake with, with direction and geography geography. It's like a really broad thing to be bad at. But I like to also, when I give examples of my my zone of incompetence, competence, excellence, and genius, I like to keep it broad um, so that it's not a laundry list of a million things in each category. The second category is called the zone of competence. So this is work that you can do, but others tend to do better. It doesn't really feel satisfying for you to do. Other people tend to be more effective at it, and it does not feel fulfilling. So for me, that's very much like logistics and operations. I can do it. I'm fine to do it and I can do it with some competence, but it just does not feel like satisfying work to me, which is why I've always so valued working with great operations leaders or like chief of staffs. I watch what they do and I'm in awe because I just appreciate that knowing that that's my competence and it's their genius. Um, the third zone is called the zone of excellence. Now, this one's really dangerous because it is the thing that you do better than most people. It's what you get rewarded for. It's what you get praised for. It's what you tend to get like promoted bonus for, recognized for in your life. And it feels really comfortable. The thing about excellence, though, is that it still feels like work. And so a lot of leaders end up in their zone of excellence and it just still feels like work to them. And and they might get some degree of fulfillment and they definitely get praise and recognition, but they're not in a flow state is how I best describe it. And so for me, that was very much, I was a commercial producer for 15 years before I became a leader in production. And I was very good at taking somebody else's vision and realizing that vision. So if there was a script or a storyboard, I would realize that vision and get things executed very well. And I was good at that. I was so good at that. I climbed really fast in my career. I was an executive producer before I was 30 years old. I became the head of production at Meta and I had a huge scope. People really valued this in me. Yet there is always something that felt a little bit like work to me about it, where 
I felt like I had climbed to the very top of the ladder and I was wondering, is this the ladder I want to be on the top of? So I was asking some questions about that. And I felt a little stuck. I just wondered, is there more? Genius is when I described it earlier, so I won't repeat myself, but it's when you're in a flow state. It just work doesn't feel like work. Time goes by and you haven't even noticed that it's passed. So for me, I always tell people, I know I'm on purpose when I use my gifts of empathy and storytelling while enabling understanding to support radical transformation. So that's my genius in one sentence. And that actually shows up in lots of areas of my life. It shows up for me as a coach and facilitator. It shows up for me as a speaker. It shows up for me as a writer, as a filmmaker, as a partner, a friend, a daughter. And so it shows up in all aspects of my life when I'm at my best. So as a coach, I'm often working with leaders who, if they come to me saying they feel stuck or they're just wondering what's next, will do exercises to try to identify their zone of excellence, their zone of genius, and then help them dissect or excavate some of these upper limiting beliefs that they may not even be fully aware of to help them understand what's holding them back because it is fear that guards the line between excellence and genius. And so upper limiting beliefs usually stand in the way between why we would choose to operate in our zone of excellence versus picking our genius. Because when you hear about genius, they're like, well, that sounds great. Who wouldn't want to do that? But lots of people feel too scared to actually step into their genius and realize that with the majority of their like working hours and tons of upper limiting beliefs show up around that. Absolutely. And I think when you speak about fear, of course they would feel fear, right? Because it does involve a, a certain amount of putting themselves out there and being vulnerable and doing that deep work. I'm just curious though, in terms of discovering your zone of genius, besides having that moment of introspection and working with a coach to, to get that reflective mode and really thinking about what really sets you on fire and what puts you in a yeah. zone of genius, are there any yeah. other ways that people can use, like low-risk ways where they can use to discover their zone? Yeah. What, what, what yeah. would you see? So what I'll always say is, Intellectually, the zone of genius sounds fascinating and everybody's curious to find out what theirs is because everybody has it. But most people are actually not willing to stand in their zone of genius. And so what I say is your willingness to live, in, live and work in genius is the thing um, that you should focus on first, whether or not you want to commit to a life that looks like that. And so I have people do a somatic preemptive where they just say, I commit to living in my zone of genius 50% of the time. And when we say 50%, because when you talk to most leaders, you'd be shocked at how little they're operating in their zone of genius all day long. I've worked with leaders who have said maybe 10% or 20% of their working hours are in genius or touching genius. And so the somatic practice of I commit to living in my genius or working in my genius for 50% of the time and just noticing what comes up when you say that. Because you'll start to notice if you have any internal resistance or if you're actually if you're actually willing to do that or not. So just jump to genius without knowing whether or not you're willing to commit to it is putting a little bit the cart before the horse. Um, because if you're not willing, it doesn't matter what it is, you're probably not going to do it. So I always like to make that point. And then secondly, genius is something that has been in us for as long as we've been alive. So a lot of people say, well, I need to go find it. I need to take a training or a class or uh, work with a coach to find it. And working with a coach can help you uncover the layers to just find what's already there, but it already lives in you. And so one practice I like to do is called the best stuff exercise. And it's when you describe seven or eight of the best moments of your life. It's moments where you were very good at that thing and there was like a high degree of positive feedback or impact. So if you love singing karaoke, but you're a terrible singer, it wouldn't make that list. But if it's something that you were good at and you just felt so fulfilled, there was positive impact being made in the world and you just felt really aligned to your purpose in that moment, it would make the list. So it's like seven or eight highlights of your life that would describe that. And I've seen people describe moments like being nominated for an Academy Award or running in the New York Marathon from something as small as building a birdhouse with my grandfather or leading a team of Girl Scouts of a hill that we thought was too too tall for us to surmount. Or a lot of these 
little memories can also help you understand what your zone of genius is. So when you look at these memories, and especially if you pull two or three from between the ages of like, I don't know, seven and 11, I think child is a good, is a good place to look. Um, and I say seven or eight years old is a starting point because you're old enough to know who you are, but too young still to be too influenced by conditioning. But it will show up as early as that. And then you look at them all together and you start to look at themes. So what do these things have in common? What are the gifts that showed up across these seven or eight moments? What are the conditions that you tend to thrive in? What are the um, outcomes that you reliably drive when you show up? What are some overarching themes that you can notice across these moments? And you'd be surprised how much you can extract from those memories. So you can do it just with yourself as a moment of reflection, or you can talk through it with colleagues, trusted friends, family, and get their feedback on what they think your genius might be. So I'm actually curious to ask the two of you, as I describe that exercise, is there like a memory that comes up for you that you would put on that list that sort of like tips a hand to what your genius might be? You might or might not have seen me just pulling out my journal as you ask this question, Joyce, because it just makes me think about a question that I was recently asked. And that question to me was, when was the last time you felt energized, in flow and purposeful? And I did this reflection exercise recently. And so very quickly, I thought of sharing one example that was very tangible. And it was actually an experience that Janice and I shared together. And this was so evident and so prominent. It was when we organized our very first Explore This Community Meetup about three months ago now. And we also celebrated our second podcast anniversary at that event. And it was very special because number one, it was our first time organizing an in-person meetup with our community of listeners and audience. We expected mm -hmm. 15 people to show up, but there were like approximately 45 people that showed up for yeah. this event. And it was small enough, intimate enough for us to get to know everyone, yet it was big yeah. enough because we totally didn't expect that number of people to show up. And the reason why it was really special is because we were able to, in that sense, convert our virtual audience that we usually interact with to in-person. And that connection and that community piece was just so powerful. And I remember just being like very energized from that event and even the lead up to that event and after it happened and just reflecting with gratefulness with Janice about how we pulled it together. I reflected on how, wow, this really sparked joy. And the reasons for that included things like connection and community. I love that we were able to build this platform for storytelling um, initiatives as well. And finally, yeah. I think the third piece, the reason why it was meaningful is because Janice and I could connect with our audience and our listeners to share with them our personal stories and experiences. So those were the few ah. things that made me feel like nice. I was in flow, it was energizing, it was purposeful. Yeah, yeah that was the recent memory that came to mind. Right. So in, I don't know the rest of your examples for this, but if I were to give you feedback as somebody who is listening, I might speculate that your genius has something to do with gifts that include vision, storytelling, organization, or planning. You like to build new things. And it's all in service of creating some kind of connection or like elevating the community. Sounds right about accurate, Joy. Yeah. So imagine if we had seven more examples, we could we could get even more precise. Yeah, yeah it's great. Janice, did you want to share something as well? Yeah, example? I think I could share something a bit different. For sure, that was bringing a community together was it was an out of this world sort of experience, completely resonate. I, I think for me, one of the most inflow experiences I've had was on a sort of peer-to-peer -peer coaching program that I got to be a part of in my former company. So this program involved a few of us coming together, mid-managerial levels, and getting toolkits on how to be coaches in the workplace. And then through that, as, as part of the training, we got to coach each other. There were moments where I felt a bit out of my debt because I was coaching some leaders who were five, seven years above me. But I think what was quite validating about that was the feedback that I got at the end of the coaching program. And I received feedback from a leader saying that 
even though the leader was more senior than me, they felt that they benefited so much just from the questions, being able to reflect from a place that, that was, that I challenged them to think in ways that they don't usually think of. And it really gave them some level of breakthrough in the way they were going about their work. So I felt like, oh, wow, it wasn't something that I thought I could do. But having done it, I really felt like I was in flow during those sessions and felt that it was also value adding in some way. And it was, I think, bottom line was that it was actually really fun for me. It didn't feel like work. It didn't feel like work. So I was like, oh, I really actually enjoy this. Yeah, Yeah, beautiful. So in hearing that, what I might speculate in hearing about your genius might have something to do with your gifts, uh, curiosity, insight. There's like a depth, a deep quality to you. I can also hear there's like a chap, someone who's not afraid to challenge in a living way. And then it's all in service of like unlocking potential or realizing potential in yourself and others. Yeah, I, I resonate with with all of those. And yeah, which is why I think in terms of my professional life, I feel like I've sort of tried to align myself with that. And now I'm in a role that allows me to do that 80% of the time. So I'm actually yeah, in a role that involves like coaching and um, professional development for business school students. So I'm yeah. hoping to finesse that zone of genius um, further. Yeah, it's that's such a great example of when you start to understand what your genius is, it's very much a choice that we can make. So noticing whatever limiting beliefs might stand in their way, working through those, which we can talk about in a second, and then choosing to explore your genius and seeing if like, what if I added 10% here? Or what if I took an initiative here in my workplace to, to try to be more in my genius? Or at Meta, I changed my scope a little bit to start to work on initiatives that it really mattered to me where my genius could be leveraged. So even offering to create conscious leadership circles and trainings was not something that Meta offered me, but that I took initiative to do. So a lot of people ask me, okay, I know my genius. I'm I'm willing to step into it. What can I do if I'm not ready to leave my role? And it's see, look at the world in terms of what you are in alignment with and then find ways to like apply your genius to that. And little by little, as long as we follow that that genius and follow the, the yeses that we have, that we call it the whole body yes, you can't go down the wrong path. Hey, Joyce, you mentioned how we should explore memories from the ages of, was it 7 to 11 or something of that sort? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking back to myself, oh my goodness, I have zero memories of when I was 7 to 11. And if there was anything that showed up during that particular period of my childhood, that memory just seems so far away and I'm so out of touch with it. But you seem to suggest that it was pivotal part of our upbringing. So how should we think about that if we can't remember? Yeah, if you can't remember, I would suggest like asking family members if you have the opportunity to do that and just say, what did you see me doing? My sisters would tell you that I used to record myself telling stories on like an old cassette player. And I would tell my own versions of like, fairy tales because I tended to think that hearing people tell stories was very soothing. And so even at age five, I was trying to do that for other people and then record it. And so that kind of shows you a little bit of how maybe my genus started to show up at a really young age. And I don't have a super clear memory of that, but my sisters like to remind me. And then, I mean, if you really can't find them or if there aren't examples, I think as early as you can find starts to point you and I liked the earlier examples sometimes because they're so pure. It's before you think that you need to have a certain kind of career or make a certain amount of income or fit like societal norms. In the younger ages, we're not so concerned about that. We There's a like a freedom where we're not so subservient on the socialized self. Yeah. I would say like as we get older, there's a wild self and there's a socialized self. This is something that Jim Dethmer, the founder, one of the founders of Conscious Leadership talks about all the time. And when we're younger, we're very in touch with our wild selves. And as we get older, we become more and more in service of the socialized self, which is hugely helpful because the socialized self gets us approval. It helps us navigate interdependencies in our community and our workplaces and our families. But when we become too much in service of that socialized self, we can lose touch with our wild selves or our essence quality. And so sometimes it can cloud our access to seeing our geniuses clearly as we might if we weren't so aware of like what's necessary to fit in in these norms that we were taught. And how do we discover this difference between excellence and genius? And I think why it's so important, it's because 
it seems so similar, yet there's like a fine distinction. And I recall you mentioning that the zone of excellence is a dangerous territory. So I want to hear if you had a personal story of how you had that distinction between both and how you discovered that. Yeah. So what I always like to talk about as a coach is this idea of energy management. So I actually think that energy management is more important than time management. So all day long, we're giving energy and it's really important for and everyone, but especially leaders, to be conscious of how much energy we're also putting in. And some people think, oh, if I rest or if I do something that's play, like playing, working out, sports, hobbies, that that's going to put energy back in. But that, I actually believe that's too limiting in the, in the way that you think about how we generate energy. When we're in our zone of genius, it's very generative. So as you touch on those two memories that you just shared, it gave you energy. It just didn't deplete you. And what I started to notice is my experience in being in excellence was I did feel very depleted. There wasn't a balance of energy being put in versus energy going out. And so that's one of the things that I started to notice about myself where it didn't help that I was a little bit of a success addicted workaholic because I was in a very bad and unhealthy pattern of outsourcing approval. For years, I chased approval in my career, believing that if other people approved of me, if I met the conditions for success that my parents had prescribed for me, then I would be whole and enough. And so it took a lot of self-work for me to understand that I am whole, perfect, and complete just the way I am without needing to do more. So that was one step that I needed to take before I started to also realize, okay, this job that I'm spending most of my waking time doing, besides overworking, why does it feel like I'm not balanced in terms of how much energy I have? And could there be more than this? What if it didn't feel like work? What if I were to imagine my, we call it the most exquisite life. If I were to imagine my most exquisite life, what would I be doing? How would my life feel? What would I be experiencing? And how, what, what, what kind of positive force would I be in this world? How would I want to impact people? And so I started to ask big questions like that. And I realized it was my upper limiting beliefs that were holding me in excellence and doing the thing that I was very good at and I had done so well in, but yet it left me feeling pretty depleted. And then also wondering some big questions around, is this what I'm really here to do? I'm not sure. Is there more? And when I imagined my most exquisite life, it wasn't the feeling that I had doing that job. So I started to go on this search of what is my genius and doing work with a coach on that. And then also facing my upward limiting beliefs around if I leave this known world that feels safe, that other people have deemed successful, will I fail? Will people approve of me? Will I be enough? And really starting to like look at the layers of that that lived inside of me and starting to challenge those beliefs so that I could reach for something more fulfilling for me. And I think it looks very different for every person. So I'm not suggesting to everybody, if you're going to live in your zone of genius, you need to quit your job. It may look very different for you, but if you're asking those questions, if you're constantly feeling depleted and you, you don't have like a reliable source of energy that is coming in in the way that you're spending your time, you may not be in your zone of genius. I always say people are blind to their genius because when you're in genius, it feels so easy. It's effortless almost like you start to feel like the universe has your back, things sort of fall into place. And so you don't even notice it's hard for other people to do the thing that is your genius. So getting feedback and exercises like best stuff is really good because people are holding mirrors to you saying like, wow, this is you at your best. And you might just take that for granted. So I think genius, when you're in it, actually feels easeful. It doesn't require so much effort. It doesn't feel anything like pushing a rock uphill, which in my zones of incompetence, competence, and even excellence, it just felt like more energy out than the energy coming in. I think those are very, it, it, those are flags, right? When, when we're deciding whether something is defeating us or not to help us identify whether or not we're truly living our zone of genius. And it does require that, that inner work that I think each of us need to put in to, to ensure that we are doing the, the, the own proactive con kind of introspection to discover our zone of genius. And on that mm -hmm. final sort of actionable and practical note, because we do love leaving our audience with practical things that they can do on, on their own, 
We would love to ask you how then knowing the sort of fulfillment that comes with being in a zone of genius, the kind of flow that comes with that, how can we move past our own upper limiting beliefs to achieve that, that exquisite life that you spoke about, Joyce? Yeah. So I'll give something very actionable and then I actually, actually would want to practice it on one of you. So what I always like to tell people is if you want to overcome your limiting beliefs, there are three really simple steps. The first is to pause and notice. The second is to accept yourself for being scared. And the third is to inquire about whether or not those stories are true. So in pausing, there are lots of ways you can do that. You can just notice what's happening and just take a breath. You could go for a walk. You could have a weekend. Pausing looks different for everyone. The most simple way to pause that I like to practice is some breath. So I like to practice four by four breathing. That's in for four, out for four, and I do it four times. And when I notice I'm hitting an upper limit, even if it's in my personal life, life, like if I hit an upper limit around my marriage, believing like, oh, this is just too good. And I notice I'm picking a fight or I have the urge to pick a fight with my husband or something. And I just feel myself up against that limit. I might just pause and do some four by four breathing. So I would actually love to hear from each of you. What's one upper limiting belief that you have? about something in your life. And we can practice pause and accept and inquire with your examples. I think the one that probably comes through now might be, what if whatever that lies in my zone of genius, like I don't have clarity over how that can be translated into whatever my next role path might be. Maybe because I don't have um, a vision of how someone else has done it and it feels slightly like I might be charting my own course. So it feels mm-hmm. like I, I don't know how someone else does it and I don't have such a high risk appetite. I'm more risk averse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be that upper limiting belief that yeah. causes me to be like, mm, so am I ready for it? Do I really want yeah. it? Is that, a, is that an example? Yeah, so I'm hearing you say... If I can't see a clear example of somebody else who's done this, then I can't possibly achieve be, it. Like, I can't possibly achieve it. Great. So that's one example. What about you, Janice? Okay, so I think my my example might be that I am right now. I've I've recently transitioned into a new role to to do more coaching and development work, and yeah, I think that's a part of me that's like okay, I've acquired a lot of career capital doing other things in the past, more strategy, implementation, type of consulting-related work. And I'm just wondering, am I, am I too sort of young or inexperienced to be able to truly chart a good and, and credible career path as a yeah. coach at this stage of my yeah. life? So that's my... <laughs> Great example. So I'm, I'm too young and inexperienced to make a meaningful impact as a coach. Mm-hmm. or in the next phase of my career. Great. So just note, tuning into the upper limiting beliefs, usually a little constriction comes when we start to believe they're true. So we'll just practice like two rounds of, of breathing. So I'll just have you breathe in for four, three, two, one, and out for three, two, one, in for three, two, one and out through three, two, one. And that's just two rounds of four by four breathing probably took 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is we're pausing to interrupt the natural pattern of reactivity when we get scared by a thought that we're having. So just wanting to check in with you. Do you notice a little bit of a shift just having paused? after having the thought around your upper limiting belief and doing a little bit of breathing. When I was talking about it, my heart was like racing. But after mm. doing the breath, well, I'm like, okay, it's, it's slowing down now. Great. So it just brings our nervous systems down because when we get scared and we perceive threat to approval, control, or security, our stress hormones get activated and our limbic system starts to go into overdrive. So a little bit of breath just interrupts that natural reactivity and starts to bring us back to normal. 
And then the second step in TALAS, accept and inquire, is to accept. So just notice what part of you is feeling scared by that thought. What feels most at threat? Is it approval? I hear approval for you, Janice, and I, I hear some degree of control and security for you, Sarah Ann. And actually, security comes up for both of you. But just noticing that's that threat of could you just notice that and be willing to accept yourself with some grace, sense of compassion that that just feels scary? There's some degree of unknown. And it's and okay to feel your, those ways. Yes, it's totally okay to feel that way. We're human beings and we never graduate from getting scared. It's not like we hit some point in our career and then like we just stop getting scared. One definition of leadership that I love the most is those who are willing to step into that unknown. So what that requires is not like building so much armor that you never feel fear. It means having courage, which means feeling fear and, and moving forward anyways, one little step at a time. So would you just be willing to notice some discomfort, little fear, and that's totally okay. There's no problem here. Great. So you might notice your nervous system even relaxing a little more. When we move through fear, instead of trying to repress it or deny it, it's just accepting our humanity. Mm. And the third step is to inquire. And that's, is that even true? Now, we can always hold a preference for something to be true, or we might have some data that says could be true. But when we hold the opposite, it both could be true and neither could be true. Then it somehow loosens the grip of that upper limiting belief that creates like some stress or some tightness. So for me, I remember telling myself, well, you will certainly fail if you switch careers in your 40s after you've done one thing for 20 years. And then I said, well, what if the opposite was true? Well, first, how might I not fail? And I was like, well, I'm getting lots of positive feedback and I've been doing this on the side for four years. And then how might it be true that I could actually be more successful if I were to juggle careers at this point? And I could find tons of evidence for how that might be true. I had a network. I was building up with transferable skills. And so, Janice, how might it be true that at your age and with your, the experiences that you have, you could still be quite impactful as a coach in this next, as you look at the next season of your life or career? Or just looking for any evidence that could support how, how that might be true. Yeah, I mean... When when I think about it in a very like objective way, without letting fear get in the way, it is true that in a way my trajectory is unique, but it does speak and resonate to a lot of people who you yes. know have pivoted locations, industries within within a span of ten years or so. So th it is true that I do have the experience and the lesson learned or toolkit in navigating career paths. Yeah. I also fear that your genius has nothing to do with your age. Or like exactly what's on your resume, but there's something about your curiosity and your willingness to challenge, to help realize potential that is has nothing to do with age or how many years you've been a coach, but it's it's your perspective and like your being hmm. more than your being. That's right. a really good reminder. Yeah. And Sarah Ann, what about for you? How might it be true that just because there's no person that's done it exactly the way you would want to do it, that you can't achieve that? So maybe for a little bit more context is similar to Janice, I've also embarked on my own professional coaching journey. And mm -hmm. similar to you, Joyce, it's something that I've been exploring informally at my workplace. I'm part of a professional coaching network at my workplace, but it has absolutely nothing to do with my day-to-day -day job. But I am very excited about the opportunity to demonstrate impact, although that's a stretch role. And um, on the outside, I also have been doing a lot of peer coaching with my current network. And so mm -hmm. putting those two hand in hand, there are some parallels to your story, Joyce, where I don't need to leave my job in order to do one at this current stage, but I can demonstrate impact in both in parallel and recognize yeah. that it still sparks joy. And I've also been receiving lots of positive feedback from the people that I've been coaching and quite a number of them, or rather all of them, have definitely been more senior, more experienced in the workplace in terms of their, mm -hmm. their tenure. 
But so far, I've been receiving really positive feedback about how I show up as a coach. I appreciate your sharing of how you did both for four years and you had received positive feedback that gave you that space and allowed you to think deeper as to and prepare that runway for when you eventually left. Right. Great. So what I'm hearing you say is you can see how you very much don't need somebody to show you how it's done because you're already kind of doing it. You're exploring like on your timeline, the way that you want to do it, what feels natural and where your energy is going. And then I also hear that in your, in giving you feedback about your, what I think your genius might be, you like, it seems like you're the kind of person that likes to build new things or carve new paths where you're not just repeating what somebody else has done. So I think there's like something inside of that too that's worth paying attention to that maybe this is exactly how it's supposed to be without uh, that you wouldn't want it any other way. And so when we can hold the opposites as we're doing as just as true, if not more true than the upper limit beliefs that we have, then suddenly it just feels a little more balanced. We feel a little more open and less constricted and bound to the limiting belief as it, as if it's the absolute truth, which most of the time it's not. It's just a story that we are telling ourselves. Um, and that story has some intelligence. It tells us to watch out, to be careful, to pay attention, to learn, um, or many of those stories do. So it's not just like we throw it away, but we sort of hold both. And, and that way we create a little more balance and objectivity inside of ourselves. The reason that I think pause, accept, and inquire is really important is because the higher we climb in our careers, the further we get in our lives, it's not like we ever solve our upper limit problem and then it's done. Like we'll never see it again. It's actually adherence. It's going to happen for our whole lives. So you might reach a new phase in your career or this is happening for me all the time now, even though I've changed careers, I still hit upper limiting beliefs about what is the influence that I can have? What is the power of my voice? And what will I do? in this next phase of my career. So I'm still running into upper limits all the time. And so just the practice of pausing, accepting myself for being a scared person, and that just happens when I'm in new territories and actually means for me, like, oh, I think I'm growing. I know that growth and discomfort go hand in hand. So I know that now. And then being able to coach myself through inquiry is helping me all the time. And it's a lifelong practice. Thank you, Joyce, for introducing us to some new concepts around overcoming our upper limiting beliefs. But more than that, bringing these concepts to life through this life coaching with Janice and myself on today's episode. On that note, one final question that we like to wrap up all our episodes. And the Mm -hmm. question is, what's one thing that you recently explored that surprised you? I wrote um, a pitch for a TV show. Wow. Tell us more. So I had an idea to write a story about me and my sisters and the consciousness story. So it's about three sisters who maybe didn't have the tools for self-acceptance or self-love and as adults had to find their way to learn these tools so they could navigate their life and careers. And so this idea sat in my mind for a couple of years. And in January, I began the process of writing a story Bible. And then I wrote a pilot. And that whole process has just been completed in the last week. So it was a labor of love, but I'm really proud of the work. And for me, it's even less about where it goes, although I certainly hope it will be seen and it can help other people. But it's being brave enough to to go where my energy called and spending more time in my genius. We love that. Thank you so much for sharing this exciting venture with us. And we certainly look forward to staying tuned and hearing more about what unfolds from this. Joyce, mm-hmm. so thank you so much today for sharing with us about what up the limiting beliefs are and how that can hold us back from living up to our biggest potential. You've also shared practical ways on how we can discover our own zone of genius, how we can move past our upper limits with all these practical tools such as the four by four breathing, checking whether something's a fact or a story and so many other gems that we've discussed in today's episode and of course for that live coaching session as well, which was truly valuable for myself and Sarah Ann. And where can our audience who want to know more about your work find you? So I'm on LinkedIn. I actually publish a monthly article about what it was like for me to change careers in my 40s. 
I'm also on Instagram at Joyce Chen underscore coaching. And then I have a very special offering that I'm opening for leaders in Asia Pacific, which will begin January 17th. So it's going to be a Zoom course, eight 90-minute sessions every other week. They'll run on the Wednesdays except for the last session, but we'll post the link with all the information. So if you want to learn about conscious leadership with me, it will be an eight-session class that will begin January 17th, and enrollment will begin this week, actually. Oh, and we're only accepting 18. We'll screen applicants and then we will choose 18 for the final group. Awesome. And we'll be sure to include the sign-up link to your um, course in our episode description. So please stay tuned for that. And on that note, Joyce, thank you so much once again for coming on the Explore This podcast to have this discussion with, with Sarah Ann and myself. We really appreciate you and your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. If you stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every alternate Mondays at 8pm. See you then!